Hello and welcome to a special bonus festive edition of the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand and I'm delighted to be joined by the author of 130 books. He was the third children's laureate, he was knighted in 2018 and has written modern classics such as War Horse and has just reimagined a story synonymous with this time of year, The Snowman. It is, of course, Michael Morpurgo. Michael, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Lovely to be here, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And now, as you may or may not know, at the heart of the Penguin Podcast are objects that our guests have chosen, items that have inspired their work and helped them unlock their creativity. So, Michael, you have kindly obliged by bringing in some objects, including a Christmas stocking and a tree ornament, and we'll uncover what those mean to you in a moment. But before we do, let's just have a look at your first object, which is a very, very special book. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes, um, I'm holding in my hand a copy of The Snowman by Raymond Briggs. Immediately you open it, you know this is another world. Um, There are no words for a start. This is the original uh, It's the original. Yes. So all you're faced with, really, is storyboarding. And I've seen this when people are making films, and particularly animated films, but in a book, it's a, it's a remarkable thing, and it's beautifully, beautifully told, but simply in pictures. And this is the way millions and millions of people fell in love with the snowman and the little boy who befriends him. I didn't actually realise until I started sort of looking into this in more detail, knowing that I was going to be talking to you today, that it's nearly 40 years old, or it is 40 it's years 40 old. It's 40 years old, yes. yes. It is an incredible achievement to have written a story that has remained completely a part of people's lives for 40 years with no words, as you say. But it's quite a complex story. Emotionally, it's quite subtle and complex, isn't Absolutely it? Absolutely it is, yes. It's, there's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of longing, a lot of trust and friendship and hope. All those things are are in there, but it is tinged with with sadness. You know, stuff ends and there is difficulty in life. And Raymond Briggs is always good at that. He he never sugars pills. And then, of course, there's the film. Yes. And all of them are fine. And then you come back to the original and you realise how extraordinary the seed corn of all this is, um, which is what... I realised when I tried to write my novel. Those huge double-page images. The one that really sticks with you is the initial flying over the landscape in the snow and then the images of Brighton, which as a child I didn't realise was Brighton. That's the one. That's the one. You're just holding it up now, Michael. Yes, halfway through. Yes, and there's Brighton down the bottom. Yeah. That's right. And how did you get involved in putting words to this incredible book? Well, that's very prosaic, as a lot of beginnings are, really. I mean, I was asked by Puffin, who published this originally and that was a brave thing to do you know here are a lot of a lot of pictures it's my story and they published it and made a an extraordinary book out of it they came to me and said look it's the 40th anniversary of this remarkable book by Raymond Briggs and we thought maybe you'd like to write a, a novel around the story since it didn't have words in the first place well I was concerned and a bit worried about it because if you touch something as iconic as this as beloved as this you're likely to upset quite a lot of people so I was concerned, and I had long, long thinks about it. I made quite sure that Raymond Briggs was happy that I should be doing such a thing, which he was. So then, of course, the challenge was, what do you do with such a thing? And I decided I'd bring it home, that the whole story would be set on the farm where I live in Devon, and that the little boy, I give a name, he's James, um, would be the son of this farming family, and uh, they're gathered for Christmas, and Granny is there. 
but it's a real place that I know. So it's a farm which has tractors and it has horses and there's a duck pond. And so he has his feet in a real place, not just anywhere. I mean, you know that, that the original thing was bright and other people might and other people might not care. Mm. But this is my farm. Yes. My hedges, my trees, my fields, my mud. Yes. And so I plonked him there in his wellies. That gave me a sense that I could make the story my own. And the truth of it is, I think, with this story, is that everyone makes it their own. Mm. That's what's wonderful about the wordless version of it, is that we all take possession of this story. It's all ours. I tried to keep it so that there was plenty of room for the reader. I think respect for a reader is what Raymond Briggs has in spades, and I like to think I've got some of it too. Absolutely. I mean, I think that definitely came across when I read your version as well, as well as his. Did you speak to him directly about it? I'd known him a bit before. And once he'd said he liked the idea, I thought, well, in a way, don't push it. If I engage with him too much, I'm going to only worry it. And worry is, a, as you know, a great inhibitor to any, any kind of writing. All I did was watch the film once, look through this book again, the original, put them aside, never looked at them again, and then told the story the way I felt it was coming out in my head, my new my new little boy, because he had to be made my little boy, I suppose, and the countryside and that family. It all had to somehow come together in my head after that. I spent quite a lot of time before I ever set pen to paper just dreaming it up. I call it dream time. Yes, tell me a bit more about that. How would you describe dream time? What what would that be? Dream time is the space you give yourself, really, to lose yourself completely in the story you're creating. You have to get lucky in life. I know this a lot. And when uh, I was just starting writing, I happened to live down the lane from a fairly decent writer called Ted Hughes. And um, he talked a lot about this, about not beginning to write before you are ready, not coming to the page anxious as to whether you could do this, but losing yourself completely. In his case, it was walking down by the river, seeing a trout or a heron or whatever, and being part of it. In my case, I have to dream the story up, dream the people up, dream the places up, and then live as those people. You become an actor. You're an actor yourself. I know you are. And what happens when you get on a stage is you become someone else. And when you're making character in the book, you have to do exactly the same thing. There's no point just writing dialogue and not being the person speaking it. So you have to be those people. You have to know those people. And you have to know the circumstance of their lives, their backstory. So in the case, for instance, of this adaptation, I suppose you could call it, I've done of The Snowman, it was important that we know more about this child other than he's just a little boy in a dressing gown. Mm. So you chose to give, give him a stammer? I did, but that, uh, that gain came from my own life. When I grew up, I was sent away to school very early and became rather a nervous little child, I think. Did a lot of biting of nails and um, stammering. And so much so that I found it very difficult in, in those days, you had to stand up and be tested on a poem you're supposed to have learnt the night before. And it terrified me. And the more frightened I was, the more I c- 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 couldn't get the words out. And this sort of thing started happening, started happening. And then, of course, what you do is people start teasing you about it. And then that gets hurtful. And then you get more homesick. And then you get more... These days, we call it stressed out. It was never you called that then, but unhappy. So I thought, yes, give this child this... I suppose he's fearful of being alone, I think. And the stammering makes it worse because the more he stammers, the more he finds he hasn't got friends and he's alienated. So that when the snowman, and he builds his snowman, he has a real passion for this friend. He's, he's got a friend of his own now and this friend takes him by the hand and he takes his friend by the hand and takes him into the house and, and then they go off on the farm and they ride a tractor together and eventually he flies off, you know. 
Yeah, and it's wonderful. And I think imbuing that with your own personal experience and also Christmas particularly, that sense of feeling alone or lonely. Is that why you wanted to bring all those things together? Because it's actually you, I think, that specifically brought Christmas into this. Yes, absolutely. Even though people associate it with Christmas, Christmas wasn't actually... Well, Christmas was very strong in in my family. And I came from a a strange, ordinary family, I suppose. Highly literary, but it was a split family. And I had a stepfather. A father I'd really never seen. I had seen him and I didn't know it because he left when I was two. I sort of brought up with two sides to my life. One was this playing happy families where everyone was together and we were all called Morpurgo, my half-brother and half-sister. And, of course, my full brother, Peter, we were all together and it was the Morpurgo family. But in those days, divorce was never spoken of. It was a shameful thing, particularly in sort of middle-class England. It was a sort of a, a nervy time because people would come to the house and it would be happy families. But underneath was a current of difficulty. But at Christmas, it all changed. Everyone joined in this thing called Christmas, and suddenly we were normal, and suddenly lots of darkness and things were forgotten. So it wasn't a show, then, the, your family Christmas. It, it, had a, it had an authenticity it to it, did. as if everyone uh, could relax. And Christmas it. did that. Right. That was what's interesting. And having the pe- magic of the it. The magic of it. You know, we did the traditional things. People did carol singing. We did go to church the next morning, and we had stockings in bed and... And always friends there. And there was a Christmas tree and there was lots of feasting and silly hats at lunch. And I remember it so, so well. It was very, very important to my growing up. That's so interesting because for some families who find themselves a little disjointed or have tensions throughout the year, they can be exacerbated by Christmas. But in fact, is that why Christmas is so important to you and why you wanted to put it in the book? Well, I think think so. And also, I'm I'm sure there was cover-up going on. I didn't want to know about the cover-up because there were other friends there and suddenly everyone seemed to relax a bit more and there was always tears, but I never knew what it was. Mm. All I knew was there was crying, there was tears and that was going on in the background. But there were other distractions. There were presents, there were sort of long walks. There's an order and a structure to Christmas, isn't there, that people have to follow somehow. And you could lose yourself in it. I think I really loved the whole business of making it merry, really. I love the word merry. Merry seemed to actually mean something, not just a word. That is part of this whole thing of, of Christmas, that you do things together. So you sing together. And these days, you know, I, I'll go to church on Christmas Day and I'm with the people I know from the village. It's a tiny little village. There's maybe 80 or 100 people. We all know each other. And we all get together on Christmas Day. Every single person in that church has got their problems and their difficulties. We all know that. But nonetheless, we have these moments together which are full of conviviality and goodwill. That word goodwill seems to me to be very important at Christmas. And not just at Christmas. And what's really interesting, I suppose, is that there is this longing, this wish for this goodwill to go on beyond Christmas. And is that why, moving on to your second object, you've chosen a Christmas stocking? Is that because it it somehow reminds you...? Well, I loved it. When we did Christmas stockings, we still do this, actually. Everyone clambered into the same bed. And we'd have the stockings there, which we carried in from our bedrooms, which had been filled up by Father Christmas, of course, in the middle of the night. And I always stayed awake to try and catch him and never did. And um, <laughs> so we would get up six o'clock in the morning or earlier, run along the passage, climb into this big bed. And at a certain moment, we would take turns to pull something out of a stocking. And that was, in a way, the, one of the most magical things that ever happened during the day. It was the beginning of Christmas, really. That was a great thing. But first of all, we had to get up after our stockings and then um, have, have breakfast and then go off to church and then there'd be a whole sequence of events and the giving of presents was from about 11 o'clock onwards and then there was lunch 
it was just wonderful. And there is that sense of a hiatus, isn't there, where all the usual things, you know, the people aren't going to bother you over Christmas, or at least everyone says, well, we'll deal with it after Christmas. There is but... that. Yeah, you postpone everything. You postpone mm. all difficulty is postponed till after <laughs> after Christmas. I mean, I love the food of it. To my dying day, I hope the last thing I ever eat will be a chipolata sausage. <laughs> There's just something about chipolata sausages, and I absolutely loved it. And we were only allowed two. I do remember that. It was very, very celebratory, and it's a good time for setting stuff aside. We have to have those times to take a deep breath, that's for sure, and a, and a laugh and a read. So that if, in fact, someone comes and reads to you a lovely book, and in, I suppose in my case in the old days it would have been The Christmas Carol or Night Before Christmas, one of those things, and I love that. Yes, and I love the way you've brought in, you've really actually amped up the intergenerational side of Christmas in, in your version of The Snowman. And there was a moment when I read it where James's mother opens a David Bowie CD, yeah. um, which was a lovely touch because it was only digging deeper that I realised David Bowie's connection with The Snowman, which yeah. I didn't realise. Yeah, yeah, it, it's extraordinary. You only have to dig a little bit or, <laughs> and, and there's stuff going on there. Now, I love that and I love the fact that this little kid, you know, all he wants is his bike. <laughs> and and why do you want a bike? Because someone else has got a bike. Then it's a beautiful colour and it's a certain make and you long for that and you long mm. for that. And also you've really brought the role of grandma up into the story as well, which I really like. And she's she's got much more of a sort of personality. I love that she's grumpy if she's being woken up at night. A lot of people have that experience of just a grandparent always coming for Christmas. Yes. And that's just a thing that happens and yes. it's just part of the rhythm of the year. Yes, and very often a single grandparent. Yeah. yeah. There's a great part in the book where James is secretly building the snowman. His dog Bertie starts to bark and it does wake up. Uh, the whole family, yeah. um, including Grandma. And actually, it's Grandma in your version that is the connection to, in some ways, the original snowman because it's just lightly mentioned that Grandma reads the Absolutely. snowman yeah. to James. And yes. so, just a lovely sort of weaving in, a sort of way of paying tribute, perhaps, to Raymond Briggs. Well, it is, and, and, and acknowledging that this book it absolutely is what people do at Christmas. They mm. read it. And certainly, a grandparent longing to have a book which a child would look forward to. It's exactly the book that you would pick up now. It's interesting. When you're actually thinking about it, I suppose there are there are really only one or two books that are iconic at Christmas. Yes, we still either read, but mostly we watch The Christmas Carol and The Night Before Christmas is there. But I would say this comes right up there now as, as, as almost the only story you would find in, in most houses. And it's either read or it's seen as a film. It's almost always on on Christmas Day. So I won't say it's as, how should I say, as... It's expected as uh, the Queen's speech, but it's sort of, it's close and maybe children pay more attention to that, I don't know. Yeah, well, yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I'd love to hear you read just a little bit from your version of The Snowman uh, where James is secretly building a snowman and his dog starts to bark and it wakes up the whole family. So let's hear that now. The lights went on in the farmhouse. Oh, thanks a lot, B -B Bertie, James said. Look what you started. You woken everyone up, M Mum, Dad and Grandma. And so, of course, it wasn't long before Dad came running out into the field. What's going on? What sort of racket about? What are you doing out here, James? He said, and he sounded really cross. But then he noticed the snowman. Wow, what a wonderful snowman. You built that all by, by m myself, James said proudly. Well, he's a great snowman, Dad said, proudly too. But if you ask me, he needs eyes and a nose and a mouth and a hat. You can have my old hat if you like. It's in the shed. Come along. 
He didn't seem at all cross any more. He took James's hand and walked him back through the snow. Mum's a bit upset, you know. So's Grandma. All that terrible racket and hullabaloo from the farmyard. Quite a noise the animals made. He woke us all up. And then we discovered you weren't in your bed. And we looked everywhere for you. No, I wasn't that worried. One glance out of the window and I knew you'd be out in the snow. I was a boy once, you know. I never built such a magnificent snowman. Massive he is. Taller than I am. You, you won't tell anyone about m my snowman, will, will you, Dad? N not until he's, he's finished. I want him to be, be a surprise. Thank you. That was The Snowman by Michael Morpurgo, read by the author himself. And what I really love about that uh, particular section is this sense that the normal rules don't apply, that you think, yes, initially mum and dad are going to be cross with this, going out in the middle of the night, getting cold, building a snow, all of this sort of thing. And then just suddenly they are quite captivated yeah. by the magic of the moment. I mean, who? everyone loves snow, this, this yeah. sort of... Yeah. Suddenly it's exciting. Yeah. And it's that, a different world. Yes. Suddenly a different world. Yes. And, and we, we all sort of become different creatures in it. You know, we become almost like rabbits hopping in it. We just love the whole business of walking in it. Or... I remember as a child, and you capture this as well in the book, that James wakes up and he, he doesn't know why, but it, the world feels different. But he hasn't looked out the window yet. Yeah. But the quality of the light, I remember this yeah. as a child, coming yeah. through your window yeah, so exciting. in the morning, yeah, absolutely. because obviously it's all reflecting yeah. off the white. Yeah. You it's... know it's out there before you see it. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and then when it's confirmed, uh, and then you see it's deep and... The whole world has changed. All the trees have changed. All the dirt and the rubbish is covered up. Yes. In a sense, it is, this is why it's good at Christmas. It's a covering up <laughs> of everything you really don't want to see about how life really is. And suddenly there's this beautiful, pristine world. And, of course, the thing that children love is it, it, it's like living in plasticine. You know, it's, just, it's all there for you to make things from or pick up and throw at people. It's a fun thing, and that's what's so wonderful about it. And what's lovely is that the adults can remember their childhood and think back to the time when snow, it gave them joy, and they can see the joy in the children, and that's wonderfully affirming for older people. When you were writing this book particularly, did you feel that you were thinking of the parents and the grandparents reading this to their children as much as the children themselves? Yes, very much so. I think um, the connection between the, the, the three generations, I'm lucky enough to be a, a grandfather of many children. I've got eight, um, I think. Yeah. I'm not counting now. I'm not good at some. <laughs> Mine's about eight. And I've got one great-grandchild. The older I get, the more I realise the importance of this, of this link and something that joins us together. Hmm. And Christmas does that like nothing else, really. And the wonderful thing about children and watching them loving life is that it reaffirms for you the importance of life mm. and how lucky we are, actually, in so many ways. And Christmas does help us to, me anyway, to just look at these children and say, look, for goodness sake, I've got my children, I've got my grandchildren, I have a roof over my head, I have enough food in my stomach. What on earth would you ever complain about? We have so much that is good and um, Christmas helps us, binds us, really, and I think it's very important. And if you can be bound together by your village or your town, that, again, helps. And eventually, you hope, by 
the people around you, by society and by country. It, it reaches out because everyone is doing this. I know committed atheists who still take their children to the crib service. No, no, absolutely. And you want to be part of it. You yeah. want to be a part of a community. Yeah. You want that warmth and the light of it and the family. And even for people who don't have their own children, you know, reading to nieces and nephews or godchildren or just the addition of children at Christmas, you, you want to make it nice for them. You do. You? And I particularly think of one-to-one, if there's a mother or a father or an auntie or whoever is sitting on a bed with a child and reading a story or indeed telling a story. These are moments children never forget. That's why the snowman has become so wonderful, because the adults love it. That's the point. The adults are passing it on, and what adults love for children of that age, generally speaking, they pass on. Let's just look at your last object, just while we're on the subject of family, because mm. uh, I believe it's an old family Christmas tree ornament of, yep. of yours. It, wow, it, that's amazing. I'm holding it in my hand now. Goodness me. And it's a homemade Father Christmas Gosh. Um, made of plaster, dressed uh, in traditional red costume with fur, a white beard and a hood, and the, one arm is broken. And it's glued onto the box, and this box is the original box, and you can see underneath it sort of stood there, uh, so it should should stay stood up and not topple over. Yes. It's battered and worn, and this came from my mother's family, and I know was around at the time of the First World War. Wow. So it's been and been and been, and it is suitably battered as a result of that, but it has stood at the foot of every Christmas tree in my mother's family. My mother had this strange name called Kippa. Yes. And this was around in her childhood to be made by people in her family before. And she was called Kippa because on the day she was born, which was April the 18th, 1918, her daddy was Belgian and this was the first day the Belgian army in the First World War had retaken a part of Belgian land. They had advanced on April the 18th and taken a little hamlet outside Ypres called Kippa. And so my uh, grandfather, Emile Camouts, um, decided I will call my daughter Kippa. So this is Kippa's Father Christmas, the one that she grew up with and then uh, passed on to me and I'm going to pass it on to my grandchildren. That's so wonderful. Uh, and so that's goes, over 100 years old. It's over it? 100 years old. and It's, it's it, incredible condition. It, well, we sort of look after and I suppose what happens every Christmas, you lay it in its box and you cover it up with cotton wool as Father Christmas should be covered up. It doesn't get a lot of usage. I do wonder who broke that arm off. <laughs> so the breakage uh, uh, predates you, uh, or your memory well, at least. Well, uh, maybe I'm the guilty party. Oh, I, I, I see, I, I see. I see. You, well, you, let's not dwell. Let's not dwell on know. that. But it's, what's lovely is there's a face painted on it. I don't know if you can just see it. Oh, yes. But it's rather a glowing face. Mm. It, um, there are eyes that are sort of staring at you. I always found that quite frightening at some particular <laughs> point in my life. But then I thought, no, this is Father Christmas who's really looking at you and saying, believe me, believe me. And I rather... Have you have, been good? Have you been good sort of thing. So this was always at the foot of every Christmas tree. And when you took away, all the presents were piled up at the foot of the Christmas tree. And the great thing was that when you took all the presents away, there would be Father Christmas. Can and, I touch it? Yes, of course you can. I love these sorts of things. They just have <coughs> such resonance in them. The object, sort of, you can feel the generations in it. You can. You can also feel that it, it, it's handmade. There's nothing, you know, well-crafted about it. Some someone sat down and made this for a child in Belgium all those years ago. It's got a lovely face. It is very, it's very alive. It is. Case. It's yeah. um, it, it's not a bad piece of work. Yeah. But I do wish the arm was better. There we are. <laughs> Never mind. Never. I think we all have breakages and Never issues mind. over the years. So he's always 
he's always my father Christmas, that's yeah. for sure. So when I was writing this story, and of course in the story of the snowman, they do go off and to where Father Christmas is. Lots of them. Yes. And um, I love that, the snowmen congregating. Isn't that lovely? In the All North Pole for I, I, Father I, I, Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Do you think this object is part of your love of Christmas somehow? Yes, I think it was. I mean, yeah. the, the fact that I can sit here and hold it all these years later and I touch what my mother touched, what my grandfather touched, and it was important in their lives um, and meant a lot to them. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's something we wouldn't dream of not having mm. at Christmas. We've talked a lot about Christmas and family and, you know, just to round off... I know that reading for children is is part of wanting to bring this story to a new generation, perhaps, or give it a new twist. Is that part of that uh, sort of vocation for you? Well, I was a teacher, and I don't suppose once you've been a teacher for was I a teacher at the Coalface for about eight years, and was have been concerned with the education of children all my life. And then Claire, my wife, and myself started this charity farms for city children. Interestingly with funds that her father gave us. Now, her father was the man who started Penguin Books. And this is the first time I've ever written for Puffin Books all oh, these years later. Wow. So it's a real sort of connection, this book, in all sorts of ways. A real reason for making this book now. But it's also because we are in dire straits in this country at the moment. We don't address certain truths, which we know are not made up. And that is that if you wish for a society where people are contented, there has to be an education system which values the happiness of children. The minute you pervert that into results and you start testing children and you bring fear into the classroom and into the school or into the home, I think the damage done is enormous because you create winners and you create losers. And the problem we have in our societies is that we have a society of huge division between the winners and the losers. Why? Because we have not dealt with people fairly. So if people work hard all their lives, what do you expect? You expect your school down the road to be really good, not force-feeding children into a system which gives a certain privilege to those who succeed academically and very little for those who don't. That's the trap we're in. The wonderful thing about reading is that it breaks through those barriers. And what are we doing? We're closing libraries. We accept in this country that it is the right of all of us to go to a doctor, free, to go to a hospital, free, and we expect that health service to be good. What we don't seem to understand is the same thing should apply to intellectual and emotional growing up. And books teach you you're not alone. They teach you to empathise with other people. So when you're young, you're reading a book about old people. If you're Muslim, you can read about a Christian. If you're Christian, you can read a Muslim. It brings people together. That happens in books. And the more they get to understand the nuances of language and what that can bring to them, both intellectually and emotionally, I think it creates more balanced, more contented people who are better prepared to deal with the complexities of this world. And this is a really complex world. And everyone has to have an education that can help them cope with it but it should be an emotional education, not one that is simply academic. And we've gone down this wrong trail, and books seem to me to be key to turning us around. There have to be libraries so that every child in this country has a right to a book, irrespective of income. And we seem to be pulling back from that and thinking, well, no, 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 you just get this online and that online. The great thing about a book is that it, it engages with a child, a reader, deeply, because the child has to make the effort
to understand these words and imagine it for themselves. And when you do that, then you can begin to comprehend yourself, your position in the world, who other people are, and, yes, give you hope and encouragement, a sense of reality, connection to the world about you, to society about you, all these things. We should get there. We should get there. I hope so. Well... Thank you so much for joining us today on the Penguin Podcast to talk about your new version of The Snowman. Michael Morpurgo, it's just a beautiful reimagining of an absolute classic that everyone will be familiar with. You've given it your own twist, and as you say, you've brought in the magic of Christmas, the, the, the generations coming together, and also that sense of a young boy who feels alone, who just takes a risk with something a bit unknown and a bit strange, and learns to fly so thank you so much it's nice to finish by just thanking Mr Raymond Briggs yes without whom I shouldn't be sitting here he made this wonderful book we owe an awful lot to people like that who make our world a better place yes yes indeed thank you very much thank you very much for joining us today Michael Morpurgo thank you Katie The Christmas Saurus audiobook by previous Penguin podcast guest Tom Fletcher is now available in a brand new musical edition. It includes 14 original songs, all written and performed by Tom Fletcher, accompanied by a full orchestra, with performances by Giovanna Fletcher, Carrie Hope Fletcher and Santa Claus. The Christmasaurus is perfect Christmas entertainment and is available in CD and download now.